On that, uh, tonight's text uh, comes from Romans uh, chapter 6. So I invite you to turn there now. Uh, Romans chapter 6, found on page 6 in your bulletin, as is our custom here in the evening service. Uh, after I read God's word, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you could respond with, thanks be to God. So hear now God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Wanted, dead, or alive. Look familiar? Any of you see here? Reward, $10,000, wanted, dead or alive, notorious outlaw, Jesse James. Jesse Woodson James, alias Thomas Howard, alias Tom Vaughn. I had a chaplain, I knew his name was Tom Vaughn. Wanted for the robbery of eight banks, eight trains, the Kansas City Fair robbery, and the Alabama paymaster job. Be aware that this man is a cold-blooded killer. Five feet, 11 inches tall, with slight build, 170 pounds, piercing blue-gray eyes, fair complexion, dark brown hair and whiskers. I have to laugh at that. I think that almost described me. <clears throat> at least that last part, 5'11", 170, piercing blue-gray eyes, fair complexion, dark brown hair and whiskers. Yeah, that's... that's... <clears throat> Wanted public enemy number one. Alphonse Gabriel Capone. Description, born January 17th, 1899. Birthplace, Brooklyn, New York. Height, five foot nine. Weight, two and a quarter. Hair, black. Eyes, brown. Complexion, dark, ruddy. Scars, marks, tattoos. Visible facial scarring along left cheek. Al Capone, alias Scarface, so named due to three visible wounds inflicted in a bar fight by a straight razor 
is currently being sought by the United States Government's Department of the Treasury Bureau of Internal Revenue Service. Wanted, dead, or alive. My favorite. $5,000 reward for the capture, dead or alive, of one William H. Bonney, also known as William Wright, better known as Billy the Kid. Age 18. Height. Five foot three inches. Weight, 125, not 225. Light hair, blue eyes, and even features. He is the leader of the worst band of desperados the territory has ever had to deal with. The above reward will be paid for his capture or positive proof of his death. Jim Dalton, Sheriff, dead or alive. Billy the Kid. One of these posters actually said he had a very nice soprano or alto voice. It was one of those two. I was like, oh, okay. He had a, a nice voice and a higher voice. Well, wanted dead or alive. Well, God doesn't want people dead or alive. He wants them dead and alive. That's what we're going to see from our text today in Romans chapter 6. He wants to see them dead and alive. Alive. Well, we're just diving into Romans chapter 6. It's a challenging book. It's a complex book. It's a wonderful book. It's well worth your time, right, Sarah? Yeah, Sarah spent a lot of time in that last year in class, and she did an outstanding job. Uh, so we're diving into chapter 6, and, and, and Paul starts off with a question. It's like he's handling or dealing with an objection. And we should know what the objection is and, and why. Right? What objection is Paul addressing here, and why? Does he find it to be so important? Well, uh, the quickest overview of the book of Romans, after Paul introduces the book, really, he sends greetings, thanksgiving prayers, those kind of things to the church at Rome, and he gives his introductory statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then goes on to show demonstrate how no one is righteous. Not one. Not Jew, not Gentile, none of them. So how then can anyone be right with God? Well, they can only be right with God by faith. We can only be justified, that is, declared righteous by God, by faith. By faith in the one who is righteous. And we see Abraham, right, believing God. Believing by faith, and it is counted to him as righteousness. This is what we looked at really two weeks ago, that idea of imputation, trading places. And so that gets us through chapter 5 for the most part, this idea that no one's righteous in justification by faith, that we're justified by faith alone. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 1, where it starts with this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, shameless plug for the ESV study Bible. Here's what they have to say here on that. Uh, can you imagine <clears throat> um, uh, this charge being laid against the Apostle Paul? Well, why is it being laid against the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul is likely responding to a question posed regularly by his Jewish opponents. They did not raise this question so that they would have an excuse to sin. Let's just keep that in mind. They're not raising this as an excuse to sin. Though in every age, some have wrongly interpreted and applied Paul's gospel of grace to rationalize sin. Instead, Paul's opponents argued that his gospel must be mistaken, since, in their view, it led people to continue 
and sin. Paul will now show why their interpretation of his gospel is mistaken. One commentator said, uh, chapters 1 through 5 told us what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. Chapters 6 through 8 tell us what God will accomplish in us through the gospel. God has elected us. He's called us. He's regenerated us. He's converted us. He's justified us. He's adopted us. And as we'll see from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, he is sanctifying us. That is, making us holy, renewing us in the image of Son. Paul will go on to assure us that we'll persevere in this in the rest of the book, and that one day we will, in fact, be glorified. So he, he asked this question, what then shall we say, or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, of course, that famous answer that Paul uses again and again, by no means, right? God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul, apparently, is the kind of person who answers a question with a question. So he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How could the gospel lead to more sin if, in fact, it is the very thing that has come to kill sin? Tim Keller, in a, in a neat little commentary that I picked up along the way. This is actually more of a devotional, and he doesn't write everything in here. There's part on John, part on James, part on Romans. It's 90 days, and Sam Albury is another person uh, who, whose name is on it. Uh, but he will, have, uh, he will have this to say, <clears throat> that died to sin does not mean that we no longer can sin. It does not mean that we no longer want to sin, as chapter 7 will go on to show. It means that the moment someone becomes a Christian, they are no longer under the reign of sin, under the power and control of sin. So to live in it, that is sin, does not mean to sin. Otherwise, everyone would live in it. It means to swim in it. To let it be the main driver in your life. So to live in sin means to tolerate it rather than grieve it. And to make no progress with it rather than to fight it. How could we live in the very thing? How could we swim in the very thing in which the gospel uh, came uh, to kill? Paul goes on here in verse 3 and into verse 4. And he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Notice all the positional language here as we read this. Into and in and with and union. It's wonderfully rich language. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. All those united to Christ by faith died with him on the cross. And you didn't just die with him. You were also buried with him. Him. Verse 5 goes on to say, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, again, more of that union language, if you're in Christ, because you've been united to him uh, mystically, a spiritual union. And verse 6 goes on to say then that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self, or old man, as Paul will use elsewhere, has been crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin, that is, under the yoke of sin, under the power of sin. Uh, this was just too powerful an image uh, to let go. This would be by R.C. Sproul. And he has uh, this to say. This was news to me. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this. Perhaps some of you know this. I know we have some historians out there. I have been told that one of the penalties for murder in some sectors of the ancient world was to tie the murdered, decaying corpse onto the murderer who had to drag it everywhere on his person while it was rotting. Did anybody know that? I need to find some more details. I don't have footnotes here. I'm wondering which society this is. It's quite an inventive penalty, probably fairly effective. Not quite what God commands in Genesis 9, but could be effective nonetheless. Can you imagine anything more ghastly than being tied to a dead body? Some think this is what Paul is speaking of here when he refers to the body of sin. The sin nature we brought into this world is like a putrid, decaying, corrupted corpse. A body of death that we still have to carry around with us until we go to heaven. Even though we have been reborn, even though we have been let out of prison and set free from slavery, we still sin and fall. However, that does not mean that we are unchanged. We are changed and the old man is dying daily. He dies the death by inches. But each day that we live in the grace of God, the new man, which has been raised with Christ, is being strengthened and is growing. And the old man is dying more and more. In a very spiritual way, it died already on the cross. But at the same time, it is still kicking and screaming. And we have to deal with it till our life's end. What a ghastly picture. What a, what a powerful image, right? We'll come back to that. Paul continues on in verse 7. He will say this, For no one who has died has been set free from sin. I can remember when my father died, and he was in a great amount of debt, and we didn't know that. Uh, and the creditors, they come. And you actually have some options. Because there's not a lot they can do depending on the type of credit. Now, I think the good and right thing to do is, is, to, is to pay off the debt, right? To pay off the debt. But credit card companies have limits in what they can do and what they can impose upon the debt and his estate. And they certainly couldn't tell him to his face, you owe me money. Right? For the one who has died has been set free. Verse 10 goes on. It says, For the death he died, that is Christ, he died to sin once for all. Christ died to sin once for all. And if you are in Christ, then you have died too. You have died in Christ Jesus. And because you've died, that means you have died to sin. But that's, that's not all that the apostle would have us to know here. He would also have us to know that if you have died to sin, you are alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, again, uh, pay attention to the union language. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Since you are in him, you have not only died with Christ, but you live 
with Him. In Him you live and move and have your being. And as a result, His resurrection is your resurrection. Even if it's separated by a couple thousand years, 10,000 years, who knows how many years, His resurrection is your resurrection. Not only the guarantee of your resurrection, but in a sense we rose with Him when He rose again from the dead. Paul continues in verse 8 and 9, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Christ is never to die again. Death has no rule, no power, no authority over Him Death could only hold him but for a moment. And that only because he took our sins upon himself. Verse 10, the apostle then continues, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ died, and he died to sin. And so he lives now for God. Well, what about what do we live for? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This works much the same way for us as it does with our Lord and Savior. After all, the Bible calls us Christians. That is, little Christ. We are following in his footsteps You see, breaking free from sin patterns starts with knowing who you are in Christ. As Ezekiel famously said in chapter 36, uh, which you find as the opening reflection, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is what God is doing. This is why you have died and why you have been made alive. You see, you've been made alive in Christ to live for the glory of God. If we go back to verses 1 through 2, this is the question that Paul is dealing with here, that he's wrestling with. What shall we say that? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? Like, is now that our sins are paid for, is that a license to sin? Well, by no means, God forbid, how, how, God forbid, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the opposite of the very purpose for which we've died and been raised to newness of life, following in Christ's footsteps. And then in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the purpose of our death to sin and of our resurrection in Christ, that we might walk in newness of life. Well, great, good. So how do we do that? Give me all the steps, Paul. Lay them out, 1 through 12, 1 through 15, 1 through 25, whatever they are, please tell me, go on to tell me what all the steps are for how 
I am to then walk in newness of life. And you know what Paul does? Basically says, I already have. I've already told you. (laughs) It's the same thing I've been telling you, and the same thing I'm going to go on to tell you. You see, Paul lived and preached a gospel-centered life. And so in verse 11, he goes on to say, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how we begin to live this renewed life by meditating on this truth. That's it? Is there more? Well, Paul goes on and he does give us a little bit more, but it's pretty much just more of the same. Verses 12 through 14. Let sin, therefore, not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul does get into some commands there, doesn't he? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for He does get into some commands, but then where does he go right back to? To, to tell us who we are. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over. This is not a command, this is an indicative. He's just telling us who we are. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. You, Christian, are not under law. You're not under its penalty. It has been fulfilled for you. You are to live under grace. You have been brought from death to life. Sin has no dominion over you. Keller goes on to say here. So while sin remains in us with a lot of strength, it no longer controls our personalities and lives. That person who could do nothing other than sin has died and has been free from sin. So while we still have bodies which sin, sinful behavior goes against our deepest self-understanding. It goes against our identity. Imagine a wicked military force had complete control of a country and a good army invaded and took power and threw the wicked army out of the capital and seat of government. The wicked force was out of power, defeated, but still able to create havoc in the rest of the country as a guerrilla force. So with the Christian, sin has been thrown out of power 
and has no hold over us. Yet it still fights hard. You see, we have died to sin, and as one commentator said, being dead to sin is like a privilege or a legal right. But we have to act on this privilege and live in light of this truth that we're dead to sin and that we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Back to the quote here. Otherwise, we are like someone with financial difficulties who inherits a huge trust fund but doesn't withdraw any money from it. Think back to that ghastly picture from Spoel. Your old self, the dead man or woman just hanging behind you. The gospel is cutting that person loose day by day. That dead weight that you're dragging with you everywhere you go, the gospel of Jesus Christ is cutting loose by the Spirit, by the sanctification of the Spirit, we're told from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians that this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, for this is the will of God Your sanctification. That old man's dead. That new man is coming alive. That flesh is being mortified and the spirit of God in you is being vivified. It's coming to life day by day, more and more. But it's not just the spirit at work. It's not just God's will. It's also something we learn from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So I'll ask you, are you leaving it all up to God? Everything in the process so far is monergistic. God doing all of these things on his own, but sanctification is something that you participate in. If you're waiting for God to completely cut that old man off behind you well he's, he's telling you pick up an axe and do some chopping yourself cut the rope that's attaching that old person to you and get serious about it Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 through 24 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Are you feeding the old man or are you feeding the new man? Are you feeding the monster down in the basement that always wants to come out and wreak havoc? Are you feeding your new identity in Christ? Through his word, by his spirit, in prayer, through fellowship with the saints. Peter's exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 2 is this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the very reason for which Christ died, that you might die to sin and you might live unto righteousness. God, in Christ, by His Spirit, is renewing you day by day into the image of Christ Himself. You think He's going to get that victory? 
You think he's going to see that work that he started in you to completion? Oh, you can bet on it. Can you imagine what life was like for Jesse James and Al Capone and Billy the Kid when they were on the run? When they were wanted, dead or alive. Sometimes the folks in these posters get away, don't they? They don't always get caught. But make no mistake, you Christians are wanted men and women. You are wanted dead and alive. You are wanted by God Most High. You have nowhere to run. You have no place to hide. His goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life. They're hunting you down. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You have died to sin in Christ Jesus, and you have been made alive to live for His glory. You are wanted, dead, and alive. Christ has died for this very purpose, and He will bring it to pass. Let's pray.